been in this series, if you've been with us all fall, called For the City, where every week we're talking about, okay, what would it look like for us to do life with Jesus in such a way that we as individuals and we as a community would become a radical blessing for the city that God has put us in right here in Nashville, that, that our life with Jesus would become this overflow, and then all of a sudden the people around us would begin to experience Jesus. And my, my confession for you as we start our time together this morning is this series, for whatever reason, uh, has been a disruptive thing for me. God's just been using it. And uh, he's been using it in a series of other things in my life to just kind of disrupt me and to kind of to kind of shape me in some ways. He's given me more questions and I have more answers. And so if over the last few weeks you feel like you've been in a person in process, like, I mean, you're in, in really good company because there's a lot of us here that kind of feel like we're in process. I remember when I was 16 years old, I was sitting in biology class and we were there in biology class with one of my favorite teachers. And uh, we got to that part in our textbook where she was talking about the human eye and she was showing us the way that the eye works. And I'll never forget on the screen up behind her, she started talking about colorblindness and she said, hey, have any of you ever, you know, learned about colorblindness? And almost none of us knew anything about it. And so she, she put this test for colorblindness up on the board. I don't know if you've ever, ever seen one of these tests, but they're typically like a circle made up of a bunch of red and green dots. And in the middle of the circle, there will be a, a number or a letter or an image, something out of red and, red and green dots that a person who's not colorblind can see quite easily. And so she's telling us about colorblindness and what you can see or not. And so she throws that up on the screen and she says, a person who is colorblind cannot see the letter that's in the middle of the circle. And she said, what letter's in the middle of the circle? And I'm looking at the screen going, There's, I don't see a letter in the middle of the circle. And she was one of my favorite teachers. She would mess with us all the time. I'm like, I'm not going to fall for this, you know. And she said, what's, what's the letter? And almost everybody in the class shouted it out at once. And I'm like, oh, man. I'm like, either I'm colorblind or I'm being pranked and I'm not sure what's happening. She said, can anybody not see the letter? And I just kind of like sheepishly raised my hand. And we had a great relationship and she's like, whoa, you're, you're colorblind. And, I'm, and she's like, how long have you known that? And I'm like, about nine seconds, you know? And, you know, can I get a handicap sticker from my car? I don't know how this, this works. And, and, you know, she, she's like, oh. And so she starts telling me about the way that this works. And it was this, is this really interesting experience to go, man, for 16 years, uh, I, I could see. But, but in a moment to discover that my sight wasn't as sharp and as vibrant as I thought it was. Have you ever had one of those moments? Like where, man, you'd seen something for a long time, but all of a sudden something happens or something is said and you begin to see it like in brand new ways. I go, this is what life with Jesus is like. I think Jesus, he brings us into the kingdom. And all of a sudden, we begin to see things for the first time that we've never seen. We begin to see God at work in new ways. But it's never just a one-time opening of the eyes. Over and over and over, Jesus keeps showing us, hey, hey, you've been seeing me, but your, your vision isn't as bright as you think it is. The, the, the color on your TV hasn't been adjusted quite correctly. You're not seeing in all the dimensions that I want you to see. And I believe Jesus, in his grace, he keeps showing up in our lives, and he keeps adjusting the color so that we can see the way that he wants us to see. I'm not, I'm not sure what happened to Sydney and I back in July, and I'm, I'm still not sure what's happening, if I'm being honest. In July, she and I were away on a retreat. We tried to get away a couple times a year just to seek the face of God together. We're on this retreat. We're just asking God what he has for our family and what he has for us in ministry. And all I know how to describe, it's just like he just starts showing us, hey, Dave, you see me, 
but you don't see me as clearly as you think you see me. Hey, Dave, you see the church, but you don't see the church as clearly as you think you see the church. Hey, you see the city, but not as clearly as you think you see the city. And if you've ever been in one of those moments where the Spirit of God begins to convict you, you know it's not a it's not this like oppressive, judgmental, condemning thing. It's like just the hand of the Lord. He's saying, hey, there's more. <laughs> there's more. I, wa- I want you to see in color. And over the last couple of months, he's been disrupting and lifting things up. And we just go, okay, man, we want to see in color. And I believe that's this process that Jesus is in, even in the middle of our church right now, that there's a lot of you. And he's going, hey, you've been doing this cultural Christian thing for a long time. And Jesus is going, man, I want you to see in color. I want you to see with all the vibrancy that God has given you to see with. And this is the picture that begins to unfold in Matthew chapter 16. And I think what Jesus is doing here in Matthew 16 is what he's trying to do in us as he's taking us on this journey this semester of talking about what it looks like to live with Christ for the sake of the city. In this journey, it is surprising, it is fun, it is wonderful, and at times it's stretching. And this morning, I want us to find ourselves wrestling in all of those tensions. So Matthew chapter 16, we're going to start in verse 13 together this morning. I love the way that this story picks up. It's one of my favorite stories in Scripture. And it goes like this. It says, when Jesus and his disciples came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is. Remember when Sydney and I were getting ready to buy our very first house, our realtor kept saying, location, location, what? Location. Hey, location, location, location. And I'm like, it's Nashville. I can't afford the location I want to be in, but I get get the principle, okay? I, I understand. Location, location, location. And it's really important as we read through the Gospels, like you you almost can't understand the message of Jesus unless you understand where the message of Jesus is being shared. And this location that the story begins to unfold in Matthew 16 is really important. Look back at verse 13. It says, then Jesus and his disciples, they went into the region of Caesarea Philippi. Here's here's a little trick for you. If you're reading through the scriptures and you ever come to the name of a city or a place that you can't picture in your mind, before you read on, you need to stop and go, okay, what's happening there? Because you can't picture what Jesus is doing until you understand. Let me tell you a little bit about Caesarea Philippi. It was about 20 miles north of the region of Galilee where Jesus and his disciples did most of their ministry. And so what's interesting is geographically, it was not that far away, but culturally, it was a different universe. It's kind of how like East Nashville is not that far from Brentwood, but can we just agree, like totally different universe, right? (laughs) Totally different culture, different worldview, different belief system, like just different world, and Caesarea Philippi was to Galilee much, much more extreme than Brentwood is to East Nashville. And so Jesus takes them to this place called Caesarea Philippi, and if you and I could go there right now, you could still see this. You walk into Caesarea Philippi, as soon as you would get into the region, uh, on the outskirts of the city was this huge rock face. Just imagine um, uh, like a Mount Rushmore. It was this big, sheer rock face with all of these carvings in it, but instead of the faces of presidents, there were these statues of these idols, of these gods and goddesses of sexuality. Kind of the centerpiece of their Mount Rushmore, their Caesarea Philippi, was this god called Pan. He was the god of sexuality. And at the base of that rock-faced mountain was this, this huge cave 
And they called it the gate of Hades because in the springtime when the water beneath the ground level would kind of rise up with all of the rains, the waters would begin to come out of the caves and the people of the day believed that it was the demons and the gods from the underworlds coming out into the world. And so people from all over the country would come to Caesarea Philippi when the water levels would rise and they would engage in all kinds of public sexual acts, immorality, orgies, all sorts of things going on like right there at the face Uh, of this place they called the Gate of Hades. Uh, This was a place that no good church-going Jewish rabbi and his disciples would go. In fact, if if Jesus was the youth pastor at your small Baptist church that you grew up in and he took the youth group to Caesarea Philippi, he gets fired, okay? Like, that's just the way that it goes. I mean, it was the the red light district of Amsterdam. It was Bourbon Street during Mardi Gras. It was Broadway any Saturday night now. I mean, it it, 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 it was a place marked by decadence. And in morality, it was a place where no one who wanted to be seen as religious and pious would ever go. And yet Jesus loads up the church van, puts a youth group in it. He drives them up there and he says, hey, let's have a conversation. He says, who do people say, verse 13, who do people say that the Son of Man is? I love this. He Googles himself. This is like the old, old-fashioned Google. Hey, 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 what are people saying about me? Like, what's... And I love their response. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And this is, this is such an important moment for us to notice. Jesus says, what are the crowds saying about me? And the popular opinion in Jesus's day was a really good opinion. It would be like you showing up at work saying, hey, hey, hey guys, what are all the coworkers saying when I'm not here? Well, some say you're Mother Teresa, some say you're Gandhi, some say you're the Pope. You know, don't you hate when that happens to you? You know, like when your coworkers start talking about you and they're like, the best person I ever know. That's basically how we describe them. And Jesus says, what are, what are people saying? What are people saying? And they give him all these great reports. And here, here's the moment that's so beautiful. Jesus looks at him. Most important question, he says, but what about you? What about you? Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And they answer like this. Simon Peter, kind of the spokesman for the group, he said, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. This is the first time he had ever made this declaration. You're the Messiah, you're the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. It was revealed by my Father in heaven. So there's this moment where these disciples, I want you to just catch this. They have grown up in the church culture of their day. They grew up in the synagogues. They knew the rules. They knew the stories. They knew all of the things that they were supposed to do. And Jesus says, hey, let's get outside of the comfort zone. Let's go up to Caesarea Philippi and let's have a conversation about what God is trying to do in your life. And he begins to bring to them a a little more color in their understanding of who he is. And he starts by helping them see more clearly who Jesus is. He says, who do you say that I am? And they said, you're the Messiah. And I, I I love this moment that unfolds because Jesus is making it clear. He says, I am not here looking for your admiration. I'm not here looking for your admiration. At this point in Jesus's ministry, he was a celebrity. Everybody wanted to be around him. They'd go for days without food just to hear his teaching. They'd travel all over trying to be around him. Everybody thought highly of Jesus, but Jesus looks at him and he says, I do not want your admiration. I want your allegiance. And there's a difference between admiration and allegiance. There's a difference between thinking I'm a good man and thinking I'm the God man. And he looks at him and he says, everybody around you thinks I'm awesome. I'm asking, who do you say that I am? You're God. 
your God. Jesus knows if they don't see him clearly in this way, nothing else matters. I think this is the place we find ourselves in our cultural moment. Our culture, in our cultural moment, there is great admiration for Jesus. You'd be hard-pressed to find even some of the staunchest atheists who don't have admiration for Jesus on some level. Man, his teaching, all the love, all the peace, all the joy, the good stuff he did, we love that. Our culture is filled with admiration for Jesus. But allegiance to Jesus is low. And Jesus says, I'm not here looking for your admiration. He says, I'm looking for your total allegiance, total surrender. I'm not a good man. He says, I'm the God man. I'm I'm the one that God has sent. And Jesus begins to give them this this living color. He begins to, to open their eyes to who he really is. But he's not just opening their eyes to who he really is. He's gonna start opening their eyes to who they actually are like to who it is that he's made them to be. And I love the way that this keeps going. Look at this. Verse 16, it says, Simon Peter answered, you're the Messiah, you're the son of the living God. That's a great confession. He says, this is who you are. But Jesus replied, and now Jesus is gonna confess who Simon is. He says, but blessed you are, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. So literally, Jesus is changing his name right here. Can you imagine? Like, I wish I had this authority in our church. If, if I could make this happen, I would do it. If I could rename you, I, I would do it. It's like, Will, your new name is Mitchell. You know, and it's like, uh, it's like be blessed. You know, and it's like, how, how crazy would it be? You know, Peter goes home and his wife's like, what's up, Simon? He's like, eh, it's Peter now. Like, like, we just read over this. He changes his name here. He changes his name. He says, you've been called Simon. He says, your new name is Peter. Peter literally means rock. He says, your name is Peter, and on this rock I will build my church in the gate of Hades. Remember where this conversation's taking place. It's taking place at the gate of Hades. And the gate of Hades will not overcome it. He says, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone just yet that he was the Messiah. I love this. Jesus isn't just bringing them more color to the way that they are seeing Jesus. He starts bringing more color to the way that they are seeing themselves. He says, Peter, he says, I want to understand. I want, I want to help you understand how it is that I see you. And this is really important. You know, during the Jewish culture that Peter and these guys and gals grew up in, it's pretty common that until you're about 12 years old, you would go to the synagogue for school and you'd be trained by the rabbis. This is kind of their form of public school during their day. And when you're about 12 years old, they would start separating the good students from the bad students. The students that could make it and the students that couldn't. The students that were spiritually elite and the students that weren't. And so, you know, if you remember when Jesus met all of these disciples, he met them as what? As fishermen, as tax collectors, as all these different trades. The reason he met them in those places is because they had already been rejected by the religious order of the day. And Jesus shows up to these guys and their, their, their view of themselves was what some of your view of yourselves are. And their view of themselves was, was quite simple, is, hey, we didn't have what it takes to be first-class citizens in the kingdom of God, so here's what we've been relegated to. We show up once a week at synagogue. We hear the stories of what life used to be like when God was here. We manage our sins, we give our offerings, and then we go about our lives. And Jesus shows up and he says, this is not the calling of your life. 
The calling of your life is not to be a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. The calling of your life is not to show up once a week and hear stories of what life used to be like when God was here. The calling of your life is not to white-knuckle your morality, to modify your behavior, to give your tithes and offerings, and to live a quiet, peaceable life until God returns. He says, no, that's not it. He says, Peter, I'm rechanging your name so you can see who you are. He says, no longer are you going to be Simon. He says, you're going to be the rock, and it's going to be on your ordinary life that I'm going to do extraordinary things that the world will never forget. Jesus says, I don't want you to be in the back seat of what's happening in the kingdom. He throws him the keys to the car and he says, I want you to drive this thing. I remember when I got my driver's license and I come out of the building with that uh, little card and I'm just like losing my mind. I'll never forget my dad like throws me the keys to the car. He's like, you drive me to work and then you go wherever you wanna go. And I was like, this is awesome. I can't believe you trust me this much. You know, your car's not worth much. He had drove a piece of crap car, but the, the sentiment was great. He's like, here's the keys. Go wherever you want to go. I trust you. I trust you. And I want you to hear this, this statement that Jesus is making. He looks at Peter and these guys, and he, he, says, he says, now that you're beginning to see me clearly, he says, you need to know that God trusts you. God trusts you to advance the mission. I mean, think about this. One day, those of you that are followers of Jesus, you're going to be sitting in the future kingdom of heaven with the disciples. And we're going to be sitting around telling stories. And can you imagine what that moment's going to be like? Hey, what did you do with your life? Well, we basically spent our whole life just talking about what you guys did with your life. They're like, what? Like, are you kidding me? Like, that's what, yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, that's what we did. I was like, no, Jesus said, hey, I, I want you to do this. He, he shows up and he begins to change their view of the way that they see him. He begins to change their view of the way that they see themselves and he begins to change their view of the way that they see their church in the context of the culture that they're in. Jesus says, it's upon your ordinary life, Peter, that I'm gonna build, listen to this, my church. He says, I'll build it. It's my church and the gates of Hades won't overcome it. Jesus says, I know what the polls are saying. I know what all the conference speakers are saying. I know what all the stats are saying is that my church is done. He says, no, I'm telling you the truth. He says, the church that I'm building is on the move. It's not defensive, it's offensive, and it is plundering the gates of hell. And he says, it's my church, and so you be careful with the way that you see it, Jesus says. Later on in the scriptures, the church will be described as the bride of Christ. And I know it's in vogue for us in our culture to rip on the church, but be careful with what you say and with what you see. It's the bride of Christ. It's his church. You can tell me you love me, but if you make fun of my wife, man, we're not cool. And there's a lot of people that go, man, I love Jesus. I hate the church. I understand the sentiment. But with the fear of the Lord, I implore you to search your heart on that. It's his church. He's building his church. And he says, in the gates of Hades, this cultural mess that we're in, with all the decadence, he says, it will not overcome the life-giving, culture-transforming thing that I'm doing. And he looks at him and he says, hey, you want in on that? <laughs> Jesus shows up, he says, he says, I want you to see in living color. And, and this is the thing that I've been wrestling with. It's what God has just been turning over in me over the last 
couple of months in particular is I've, I've been thinking about all of these tensions that begin to arise as we think about what it means to be people that live with Jesus in such a way that we become a blessing for the city. The, the, the question for us is not what is our vision for our church in Nashville. The question is, Jesus, what is your vision for your church in Nashville? And those are radically different questions. And we have to ask ourselves, if, are, are those questions even in the same hemisphere? You know, as, as we've been talking through this over the last couple of months, there are these, these tensions that I find at work in me, and maybe, maybe you'll resonate with some of these tensions. And I want, I want to be very clear. Both sides of these tensions that I'm going to name are good. These tensions are not a problem to be solved. They're just a tension to be understood. And it's this, this tension between my eternal longing and my present calling. That there's this tension in me between my eternal longings and my present calling. You know, one of my good friends, he's the new senior pastor of Cross Point here in town. His name's Kevin Queen. We've just become great friends over the last year. And he and I talked several times a week. And it's just an amazing, just amazing man of God. And a, a few weeks ago, he mailed me this little pamphlet from a, a missionary who was a missionary to China in the early 1900s. His name was C.T. Studd. I'm just curious, raise your hand if you've ever heard of C.T. Studd. I, I know it's not a real popular name. A few of you have maybe heard of him. Well, um, in the early 1900s, C.T. Studd led a missionary society, and this was the name of his mission society. It was called the We Don't Care a Damn Mission Society. And um, sorry if you had kids in the room. I should, I'll, I'll filter that out next service. But um, that, was, that was the name of the mission society. Try getting that sponsored by the church you grew up in. And, and, and his thought was, hey, we are going to just live into what God has called us to live into, regardless of what people around us think about it. And he gave me this little pamphlet called the DCD, you know, you know fill in the blanks, the DCD uh, manual. And I'm, I'm reading it, and there's this quote in it that just began to disrupt me because the quote speaks into these two tensions that I've been feeling. And here's the quote. You can write this down. It's, it's an amazing quote. It's from C.T. Studd. He says, most Christians want to spend their lives within earshot of chapel bells. Most Christians want to spend their lives living within earshot of chapel bells. He says, but I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. He said, most Christians spend their lives wanting to live within earshot of chapel bells. He goes, but I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. And I read that quote, and it's just been disrupting me because I, I go, man, the, the first half of that quote, I want to live within earshot of chapel bells, that speaks to our eternal longing. I go, if, if I'm really honest with you, I, I go, I do not want to live within a yard of hell. <laughs> I, I want to live in the sweet spot of the chapel bells. I was telling Aaron this, this morning, I said, man, I wish I didn't have to preach today. I wish today I could just take my Bible, go over to your house, we could eat breakfast as a family, we could read the scriptures, and we could just live in this like little Christian utopia. And I think if we're all honest, there's some level of us, that's what we long for. We long for a world with perfect community, perfect life, no sin, no brokenness, where you're fully known, fully loved. Like that's the, that's the longing and the desire of our hearts. And the truth is, that's a good longing. That's an eternal longing. I think that's what Ecclesiastes 3 is talking about, where he says eternity has been set in the hearts of every human being so that they'll search for it. That there's this longing, there's this thing in you that is drawing you towards the reality of heaven, and that is to live within the sound of 
church bells. But there's a difference between our eternal longing and our present calling. And the second part of that quote speaks into our present calling. That our present calling is not to live in Christian utopia, but the present calling is to take all that we've experienced in that Christian utopia and to bring it within an inch of hell. It's what Jesus is speaking about in Matthew 16. He gets them outside of their norm. He gets them outside of the comfort zones that they were used to. And he says, I want to give you my vision for what it is that we're trying to do through you. And he says, my vision for what God is trying to do through you probably isn't gonna happen in Jerusalem in the neat Sunday school tidy places. He said, it's gonna happen in places like Caesarea Philippi. And I'm curious if you're in for that vision. And the disciples felt this tension. In the very next chapter, Matthew chapter 17, Jesus takes them up on a mountain. They experience the glory of God in ways that they never experienced it. It's literally a mountaintop experience. And I love what Peter says in the middle of that mountaintop experience. He looks at Jesus and he says, Jesus, it is really good for us to be here. I'm gonna build some houses. He literally says, let me build three shelters. We'll all live up here. Peter already forgot about his wife and kids who are at the bottom of the mountain. He's like, that's when you know it's a spiritual experience. Like when you forget everybody, he's like, I'll just live up here. Jesus, you deal with them down there. He says, let's stay here because he was tasting that eternal longing. But Jesus goes, that's not your present calling. It's not your present calling to stay on the mountain. He says there's work to do down in the demon-possessed valley, and he takes them back down into the valley, and they, they begin to encounter it. And I go, isn't this the tension we face as we talk about what it means to be the type of people that do life with Jesus for the sake of the city? That if we really want to be for the city, it's gonna require us to take hold of the vision of Jesus and the vision of Jesus is gonna take us to places like Caesarea Philippi. And this tension that's at work within us, or at the very least, this tension that is at war within me is something that's got to be addressed because the reality is if we're not careful, we will spend every Sunday talking about our present calling and then Monday through Saturday, you will spend your life chasing your longings. Every week we'll get here and go, hey, let's talk about, is it for the city, for the city, for the city. And then Monday through Saturday, we live for the longing instead of the calling. And Jesus says, hey, I, I want you to see this. It's tough in a culture like ours, it's what Aaron talked about last week, in this age of authenticity, where the dominant narrative of the day is you have one life, use that life to fulfill your longings. That's the message of the day. You have one life, use your life to fulfill your longings. The message of the cross is you have one life, it is not your life, deny your life and follow me so you find life. And here's the thing you gotta hear. The message of Jesus and the message of cultural Christianity are fundamentally opposed. They're oil and water. They are not compatible. They are not compatible. And if you're not careful, you'll spend your whole life in church, but you'll see Jesus in black and white. And I believe Jesus is trying to lead us outside of our comfort zones to take hold of the vibrant, life-giving adventure that he's inviting you into. And I don't exactly know how he's gonna do it in you, but here's what I do know, is that when Jesus was ready to help his disciples see more clearly, 
He didn't take them into the synagogue and give them another Bible lesson. He took them on a field trip to a place where they weren't comfortable. And he asked them, is your vision of me clear enough to believe that God could use you in a place like this to bring heaven to earth? And the thing that I've been praying over you this week is I've been thinking about this place that God is bringing us into. And maybe, maybe you don't want me to pray this prayer and you can just pray against me and we'll see whose prayer life is better. Uh, <laughs> I've been praying that the spirit of Christ Jesus himself would disrupt you to your core. And that cultural Christianity would be so boring and so bland that you'd be willing to go for the more. And that God would take you into the places that only God can take you. You know, I, I, don't, know, I don't know where you need your vision sharpened this morning. For some of you, you, you need Jesus to help you see him more clearly. And here in just a few moments, we're gonna spend some time praying together and you, maybe you don't even believe in Jesus and the request is, hey Jesus, would you help me to see, hey, if you're the son of God, if you are who you say you are, would you help me to see that to be true? Even if you're not a Christian, you can pray. I don't know if you know that or not. You can just ask Jesus, would you help me to see who you really are? For some of you, you need your vision to be tuned around the person of Jesus. For some of you, you need your vision to be tuned around who it is that God has made you to be. For some of you, you've spent your whole life living as a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. And Jesus is going, man, I've got more for you. And for some of you, it's just, hey, Jesus, would you help me to, to understand how you see me in the mission that you've put me on? I'm gonna invite you to just pray that. Jesus, help me to see me. And for some of you, you, you need the help of Jesus to see the church for all of her beauty, for all of her complexity in the midst of the culture we find ourselves in. Hey, Jesus, would you help us to see what it is that you're wanting to do among us for the sake of those that are around us? And so here in this moment, before we go to communion, I'm gonna invite you to just get in groups of two or three and spend just a couple of minutes just praying for each other. For some of you, you need help to see Jesus. For some of you, it's to see yourself. For some of you, it's to see the church that Jesus is seeing and the culture that he's brought us into. And I believe as the color begins to come back, all of a sudden we'll begin to experience what God has made us for. Let me pray over us, and then I'll invite you to get in groups, and then after that, I'll send us to communion. God, I love you. I thank you for the disruptive work. I thank you, Lord, that you do not allow us to stay comfortable in the black and white. That, God, you would enliven the taste buds of our souls. That, God, you'd give us a hunger for the greater things. And that, God, you'd help us to see where you're at work and to give us the courage to go there. God, yes, we long for life in earshot of chapel bells, but in this season, right here and right now, we want to run the rescue shop within the yard of hell. Would you help us to see where that is, to see how to do it, and would you help us to trust that you are the one who is building, who is leading, who is stretching, who is shaping, who is calling. Help us to know those differences. God, would you protect us? from sometimes misguided, youthful, humanistic ways of heroic endeavor, God. We're not here mustering up, let us do something great for God. We're just saying, hey, would you help us to see you as you are, to see you where you are, and help us to meet you there. And God, this week, as we go into our workplaces and our neighborhoods and all of the spaces that we're gonna go, would you help us to begin to see in color? Would you help us to see as things actually are? In the name of Jesus, I pray and give thanks, amen.